0: Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, the investment bank for the creative digital economy. Today we hear from New York Stock Exchange president Stacey Cunningham, who assumed the role in May of 2018. In conversation with Liontree CEO Aryeh Borkhoff, the pair discusses Cunningham's path from NYSE intern to president, the exchange's technological evolution, and her outlook on the IPO market.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Aryeh Borkov. I am pleased to be sitting here at the New York Stock Exchange downtown at their podcasting studio with the 67th president of the NYSE, Stacey Cunningham. Thank you for being here, Stacey.
2: Aria, I could not be more excited to be doing this with you.
1: Amazing. really appreciate your being our latest guest on Kindercast to kick off 2020. I know that the NYSE has your own podcast called Inside the Ice House, which we started actually right around the same time we started Kindercast. So looking forward to listening to that one and being a guest on your podcast as well. So that's Nice. So last year was a pretty tumultuous year for the IPO markets, and I'm eager to hear your take on it and much more about your career and where we're going at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, But first to get started, you're the first female to lead the NYSE in the company's 227 year history. Can you tell me about how you got started and your path to leadership and what brought you here? And I say that because on the way in here, there's this great statue of the girl right outside Mm -hmm. the New York Stock Exchange, which I think was moved here from near the bull. It's great to see and I took a picture of it and it's just an amazing sight. So I thought of you and now we're here. Tell me how you got here. Fearless
2: Girl, she arrived last December. So she moved right outside the New York Stock Exchange and I think she's really an inspiring symbol. And what I love about her is she means so many different things to different people and it doesn't have to mean the same thing. Like any good art, you take what it means for you. She was originally placed in New York City down by the bull as a statement from state street about the fact that there should be more female leaders on corporate boards. I see her and I just think she's calling out the world, you know, and she's just got a a fierce look and she's not scared and she's not intimidated And she's just going to go make her own mark and and pave her way. And I think it's an inspiring symbol for women to think for themselves as well, not just for corporate America.
1: Yeah, she has her hands on her hips and she's looking at the exchange and she's like, I'm going to take this on. Right? Yeah,
2: it's that moment in your childhood when you don't know yet what you're supposed to be afraid of. And you haven't yet been told all of the things that you're supposed to be thinking from society. And that's such a pure state. And so if we can channel that a little bit more frequently and discard a lot of the news that we hear from how we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to look like and the types of roles we're supposed to play, I think we'll all be stronger. So I love that message from her. So I'm really excited that she moved to the neighborhood and she's right outside.
1: Does she remind you of somebody?
2: No, she doesn't. And I'll I'll (laughs) tell you why. I mean, she embodies so many different people. My own career was not well planned out. I'd love to say that I as a child had aspirations to go tackle the world and that like her, I saw my path and just went to go blaze it. But I think of my career as more unfolding. It was not well orchestrated, but it came together anyway. And I started studying engineering in university and just expected that that would be the area I went into because I always liked math and science and I hadn't had a lot of exposure to things out there in different careers. And I ended up, with an internship on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange, mostly coincidentally. But your father
1: was a stock trader here, right? He
2: was, but he never talked about what he did for a living. And he didn't come home and describe his career. And so I had very little insight into what it was like to be in the markets. He just didn't spend time on that. The true story is that I was trying to get a summer job waitressing and nobody would hire me because I didn't have waitressing experience. And my father finally said, well, maybe through a connection of mine, I might be able to get you an internship. So it's kind of that cliche summer internship.
1: But purely coincidental between your father and you.
2: Yeah. He just suggested that perhaps he could find me an internship and he did. Mm -hmm. And he didn't work at the New York Stock Exchange, but he was in the industry and and he was a a trader for a Canadian broker dealer. So he got me this internship. And when I accepted it, I just thought, fine, this will be a summer job that I go do for you know, a few weeks. And I came down to the New York Stock Exchange trading floor. And within about 15 minutes, I thought, wow, this is what I love. You know, I like math and science and I like engineering, but this is real passion. And you know, I kind of felt like I found this secret that he had for all these years about how exciting the markets could be and how interesting it was. The energy on the trading floor is just really contagious, and the sense of camaraderie and community was really important. So my view of the markets have evolved tremendously, but that was sort of the first unfolding of the piece of paper that became my story. And when I look at that entrance, I knew that's where I wanted to be. It felt like home. It felt like where. And I when walked.
1: you started. You were one of the few females on the exchange, right? I was
2: outnumbered for sure. Yeah, (laughs) there weren't so many. At the firm, when I finally got to the point where I became a a specialist and a market maker, there were 92 people at my firm in that role. And it was me and one other woman out of there. So, you know, there were a few more women as a support staff on the floor, but it was certainly male-dominated. I didn't notice it. Really, it wasn't top of mind for me. It never occurred to me when I walked into this building that, I was lucky to be walking in this building as a woman. I totally took it for granted. I had no logic that it shouldn't be that way or that at some period in time, I wouldn't have been allowed to. And I I didn't think about that. And I think that's an important lesson because for me, I was the beneficiary of those who blazed that trail ahead of me. And it it put me in a position where I could take a job and not even think about the fact that it was a job that wasn't available to women earlier in, in history. You know, there's a woman named Muriel Siebert who was the first female member of the That's New York right. Stock Exchange. It took 175 years to get one female member and she fought for it. She was fierce. She was like that girl outside the exchange with her hands on her hips saying, I'm coming in, you know, and she fought for it. I didn't even know her name when I started on the trading floor. I didn't know who she was. So she wasn't a role model for me that I visibly looked up to and she didn't influence me in that way. But she had tremendous influence on my career because I would have been there if she didn't do what she did.
1: But you also blazed your own trail. You have followed your own path to get to this point, right?
2: Yeah, I followed my passion, followed what I love doing. And you work so hard. If you don't like what you're doing, it's much harder work. Yeah. So I think if you find something you like doing and you find a way to do it as yourself and not try to be somebody else, it just makes getting up for work a whole lot easier and more fun.
1: Yeah. People always talk about the building a career based on a missionary or a mercenary concept and we're following your passion or economics. And I would say all economics follows passion, you know, much better to have a missionary pursuit of your career and to focus on that and let the capital, let the money, let the paycheck follow the passion.
2: I totally agree. And that's how my career has unfolded, right? I've always focused on what should we be doing as a team? What should we be doing as a business? How do we find the right path and the right future for us as an organization? Much less about my own personal success. I've really never made a decision about my career with respect to what it means for me so much. I feel like it's really important to think about the organization And then your own personal success follows because people want to hire people who are thinking about the success of the organization. And I've always had roles presented to me. They weren't things that I went out seeking.
1: But your path is your path. But effectively, you did open doors for a lot of other women now to come into leadership roles on the NYSE. And- Hopefully it won't be much of a fight as it was for you or for others. But what advice would you have for young women coming into the industry, coming in for the New York Stock Exchange and how to really build a diverse career here?
2: I think you have to embrace your differences, Mm -hmm. what makes you so much more valuable as an asset to the team is the fact that you are different and you do think different. When I look at building a management team, having diversity of thought is critical. I focus less on saying how many women or how many people of different backgrounds and more on how do I get people who think differently? And when you're really focused on getting people that think differently, they tend to have different backgrounds and different genders. And they sort of, again, follow together and you can't have everyone thinking the same way, you know? And I think it's really important to build a team that, really thinks more broadly and culture is so important. And I do think you can have a culture that's consistent, you know, and this is a debate I've had with people because they say, no, you shouldn't hire somebody who, you know, would fit into your culture because you want diversity. You can have diversity in thought, but all be aligned on how you communicate with each other and how you respect each other. And so I do think having a consistent culture is really important too.
1: But you don't want a culture to be so safe That you're not taking a risk, right? Yeah,
2: I didn't say safe. (laughs) I mean, we challenge each other and that's expected. It's not just allowed, it's expected. And we challenge each other respectfully Mm -hmm. and we think it's really important for everyone to be able to have a voice. It doesn't matter how senior you are. It doesn't matter who you report into. It's really important that if you have an opinion, you feel comfortable sharing it because you don't get the benefit of having a diverse team if you're only hearing from a, a few players. And it's also important that, not everyone communicates in the same way. So I go out of my way to make sure if I know that there are people who tend to be less vocal on their own, that you actually call on them and say, well, what do you think about this? Because I know you're going to have an opinion that I value, but you might not share it with me. And so I'm going to ask you for it.
1: Yeah. Where do you get this curiosity from? Like where you effectively have many different interests. I saw that you signed up for a nine-month culinary program, you know, tell me about that. And where do you have time and where do you have Your different interests and where does it come from? Where's the inspiration?
2: Yeah, it's just things I like doing. I really like to eat. So so that explains (laughs) the the culinary bit. When I knew at some point in time, it was time for me to leave the trading floor. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to go do next. But like I said, I knew I'd like to eat. So I figured I would go to culinary school. And I knew at that point, it wasn't going to be my next career But I knew it was an interest that wasn't ever going to go away. And it would be a skill that would always be useful because we all will tend to eat. So I went to school for nine months and it was fun. I had a really great relationships that I built through that program that I still have today. And I was surprised by how similar it was to work in a restaurant kitchen as part of school. You know, it was very similar to working on the trading floor. You had to have very focused communication, very quick communication, quick decision making. You didn't have time to think about placing blame. You had to figure out how to solve a problem and, and move ahead. Those skills I very much value from my days on the trading floor. And I saw they're very similar skills to working in a restaurant kitchen. And I apply them every day in my career. And I think that's also something that we should just be thinking about is we're all made up of our experiences and what are our backgrounds and our skill sets. And they're so transferable. You know, you can use them to tackle whatever new initiative. I mean, you've switched gears a number of times, oh, yeah. right? And yeah and you use what you learned.
1: I also like to eat. When I first started, the first job I had was at Smith Barney and high yield bonds and research. And the person running the group, a guy named Allen Ginsberg said, you're gonna work for me. And I said, well, what do you do? What do you focus on? Which industries? And he said, well, media, technology, telecoms, food and restaurants. And I thought to myself, I like to eat, but I don't know what else he said. So let's do it, you know? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And that's the fellow I I just focused on, you know, the communication side of the business effectively.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good pivot. There's a lot of shared food love on a trading floor as well as in a restaurant kitchen.
1: Yeah. Well, before we get to the markets and the exchange, I want to ask you about your leadership style, because one of the things that our listeners really look for in Kindercast is What are the leaders of tomorrow? What do they look like? How do you prepare yourself to run these complex organizations? And I always go back to managing your time. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how you organize your day. How do you think about your priorities? How do you think about your time splits? Is it internal versus external? How much is it management versus working with companies? Tell me about your day.
2: So I think when it comes to a day, you know, as the head of the New York Stock Exchange, you have very little control of what your day is going to look like, right? There are so many different things. You might have a head of state that's coming in to visit. You might have listed companies that are here celebrating an anniversary or a milestone or an IPO, or there's market news out, global events, then and it becomes a trading-focused day. Those vary so much that it's important for me to have a sense of how much time do I want to spend on things generally? So actually, Carrie, I have a little snippet of how much time in general should be spent on external facing clients executing against our strategic goals for the year, advocating in DC for issues that are important for our listed companies. And have sort of just allocated a certain percentage of time to each of those things. And then, you know, monthly or every so often, I take a look at it and I say, is that how I'm spending my time?
1: I do the exact same thing, by the way. I feel like you have to align your calendar with your mind. Yes. And if you do that properly, your goals will just take care of themselves, right? Because if you say, I want to be doing the following things externally and you align your calendar for those percentages to be prioritized, that will happen. I have a weekly check and a monthly check exactly with those percentages.
2: Because it's so easy. There are things that will always demand your time and they're the squeaky wheels will raise their hand and ask for more time on your calendar. And I found when I started in this role as the head of the exchange just about a year and a half ago, I very quickly saw that I had lost control of how much my time was spent where, right? There are certain things, whether it was speaking engagements or media opportunities, there are a lot of things that would just come up and they would take up a lot of my time. And I realized, wow, if I don't make this a conscious decision, about how I wanna allocate my time, somebody else is gonna decide for me.
1: Yeah, you live in, you work in New York City, you wake up in the morning, if you do nothing with your schedule, it will be filled up already. I call that defense. Yeah, If you actually wanna play offense and start putting things on your calendar that you really want to do, that's critical, but you have to have room for both. And so I always say if it's 100% defense or 100% offense, it's not really working. It has to be a good blend. Yes, I agree. Know, because it will get filled up either way, right? Yeah,
2: and you'll have those days where you thought they were going to be offense and they just get wiped out because yeah. something came up and you're playing defense, but Correct. it's over time on average. How's it going?
1: Okay, good. I like that a lot. So tell me about the New York Stock Exchange, how it's evolved, where it exists today. It's been you know almost 228 years and- there's been a lot of talk about technology development across all industries and obviously all the companies you focus on, but how technologically advanced is the New York Stock Exchange?
2: I have seen this institution evolve so much over the 25 years that I've been part of it in some way or another or associated with it or around it. And when I think back, you know, our mission is still the same. We're here to help companies raise money so they can go out and change the world. And they're providing opportunities for investors to share in their success. That's what we do every day. How we do it, has changed a lot over the years. When I was on the trading floor, it was largely manual. If a company was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, roughly 85% of its trading happened on the New York Stock Exchange, and majority of it was either manual or verbal interest, certainly from a volume perspective. Now, trading in the US markets is much more fragmented. It happens across 60 different venues, you know, 13 exchanges, 40 different dark pools, which are owned by broker dealers. And it's a much different place. And you have to use technology and you have to be using sophisticated technology. So we process today, our systems process 80 billion messages on a given day wow. that compares to single digit Billions of Google searches per day, so it's a lot, right? You can't do that as people on the trading floor. Analogies, can't do that in Excel. No, you're not <laughs> doing it in Excel, and you're not hitting keyboards to do that either. So what we've done is integrated the most sophisticated technology, low latency, high throughput technology with human judgment. So the people on the trading floor are no longer manually executing any of those trades for the most part, but they're using algorithms. And then they're applying their human judgment to adjust the algorithms. So when there's news out or there's a sector that's particularly busy or a particular company is not trading in line and there's sort of a temporary disparity, they can step in and provide adjustments to the algos, but they're trading in an automated fashion. And because we keep that combination of people with technology we have better outcomes. So our stocks trade with less volatility, which means their investors save money.
1: So it's not purely algorithmic, for example. I always say the best technology is the one that recedes into the background and it's almost invisible, right. but very high powered and high performance. You've advocated for- and the necessity for an in-person exchange, yes, which is a bit counterintuitive, given how much focus there is on technology and algorithms. So tell me about this in-person exchange concept. We
2: empower people with technology, right? So we believe strongly that the combination of people and technology is so much more powerful than either one of them on its own. And you can run an exchange fully electronic but we have a better result when we apply human judgment on top of that. So taking the artistry and the creativity and the judgment and experience that human beings have from understanding business and industry and layering that on top of sophisticated technology, we're able to give our customers a, a better result. And that's really important to us. I mean, the analogy that we often use cause it really equates is the airline pilot. You know, a plane can fly itself. We've have technology that can do that. But when we're putting ourselves on a plane, we like to have somebody sitting in the cockpit that's going to be (laughs) able to grab those controls during takeoff, during landing, and anytime you hit some unexpected turbulence.
1: For human judgment.
2: For human judgment.
1: So does that work? It sounds logical, but how do you measure the success of that process? Our
2: stocks trade with less volatility. So our stocks trade better, and particularly during periods of market stress. So a year ago, we were coming out of periods of high volatility in the market the quoted spread, the prices, the bid-ask spread on companies that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange widened out by 40% less than fully electronic exchanges. Mm. And that's because we require the people on the floor to meet certain standards. Those trading firms down there, they have obligations that we put on them. And as a result, that's value that we're providing to the investors who are coming in and out. And we want to make sure that during times of market stress, that's when we're stepping up, not stepping down.
1: So does that come with a cost of investment or is it with a different cost structure because you have a human component to it versus purely technological? Yeah, we and pay for it. it.
2: it? You know, we invest in it. We invest heavily in it and it's additional value that we give to mm-hmm. our listed companies. And so by giving them that experience, you know, we're the premium offering, right? We're saying that if you want to have security and insurance, this is the model that's going to give you the best possible outcomes. It is insurance in many ways, right? You want to know that you have somebody there who's accountable. That doesn't exist in other marketplaces where you actually have somebody who has responsibility. And we do it through a number of different ways. One is regulatory. So our rules require them to be there. The market makers that we have on the floor by rule have an obligation to meet certain standards that we put on top of them. And those standards are above and beyond industry standards that would exist elsewhere. And two, we also pay them because they're not going to sign up for that just because they're nice guys, right? (laughs) Right? I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time and people need incentives to do things. And so to take on that added risk, we compensate them through a number of ways. One, through just financial payments and two, also through giving them some trade-offs around how they trade throughout the day as well.
1: And that seems like a blueprint that could be adopted by all companies or technology companies in our industry, right? To have a push for efficiency and a push for automation and a push for algorithms and the use of technology, but an overlay of human thought and judgment along the way. And that seems like the right blueprint, whether it's regulated or not, it seems like that's where we should be. Yeah. Going. I mean,
2: it's hard to use the word technology company anymore, right? I mean, yeah. what's not a technology company. If you think about the way technology has changed the landscape of our business and any other business that's out there, it's really hard to draw those lines. I think a lot of the tech companies, that have this view as tech companies, are they tech companies or are they media companies? or right. are are they consumer vendors? You know, I mean, you look at all these companies that are coming to market and and we have a front row seat, right? For two centuries, we've been watching the companies that come to market changing the way we live, work and play every single day. And the earlier versions of tech companies, I think, are just now companies yeah. that are providing a service or a product. And they're using technology to facilitate that, like so many of the other companies who have evolved their businesses throughout the years.
1: Yeah, you can't compartmentalize technology as a division or the be-all-end-all all of a company. It has to be sort of the blood in the veins of these right, companies, right? Right, yeah. I agree with that. So what is your pitch? So let's say a company that wants to go public, they're coming to the New York Stock Exchange, they're talking to you, Stacy, and they're saying, I'm strongly considering the NYSE as my top pick. Why should I come here? Why should I list here?
2: There are four real differentiators that tend to be the reasons why companies choose to work with us. And the first one is that market model that I talked about. We invest heavily in having the combination of people and technology when trading stocks, and it means that it saves investors money and it saves companies money anytime they're trading their own stock. So period cost savings there. And that's the biggest differentiator. Second, it's also the network. So you want to be among your peers. And we have 75% of the S&P 500 listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Those are potential partners, clients. There's so many connections we can put by bringing that network together. There's an
1: ecosystem here. There's an
2: ecosystem here. And it's not just companies that are all happen to have the same names on a slide deck. We bring them together and we provide opportunities for them to learn from each other and also network and build relationships through that sense of community. The third is our marketing and visibility. I mean, everybody knows the profile that NYSE has and leveraging that platform, to amplify the message that a company has is a big part of what we do. I mean, I've been doing it all day today, you know? And then fourth is the suite of services that we have to help make them a better public company. It's tough to be a public company and it's not getting any easier. There are a lot of tremendous benefits that you get from being public and having that access to liquidity But at the same time, there are some challenges. And so we have a suite of investor tools that help them navigate that. And that kind of all-in offering is really why companies choose us. And we have been the capital-raising leader for so many years, and the leader of all the large IPOs and choose the New York Stock Exchange for those reasons.
1: It must also be iconic for these companies, right? When you walk down the street, and we walk down Wall Street and Broad Street, and you see the building and the company's name and flags and banners on this iconic structure. And we're sitting here in a very beautiful library within the building. It's all been refurbished and it's really nice and clean and everything. But outside, it is just a pillar and structure of American finance. We were involved in a number of different deals, but one of the more recent ones is the Virgin Galactic listing. And we were helping uh, Richard Branson that was and a the fun team. one. That looked like a fun <laughs> one, yeah. The fanfare must be a big part of it as well at the end of the day, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that fun and that visibility also helps their business, right? If they can have a good time and highlight that, It's a great marketing event for them. We'll lean into that for them also. And it's just such an iconic institution that there is a lot of pride in that. It's not lost on us that, we're built on the shoulders of giants and they're icons that have been changing the landscape of not just this nation anymore, but globally, that's really what makes us up, right? And so being able to tap into that all the time is a really fun part of this job.
1: Yeah. So are you much of a historian now? Because as you said, you've been- More effort- so than I was. Yeah, that,
0: that,
1: <laughs> you're a young woman, you have a long way to go in your career, but obviously you have the whole weight of the two centuries of performance of the exchange on your shoulders. And it's a great, great story. What are some of the um, longest listed companies on the NYSE?
2: So, the longest listed is Con Edison. The first listed is Bank of New York. So, Alexander Hamilton founded Bank of New York in order to facilitate his plan to nationalize the state's debt and that whole thing. And so that was the first company traded by the New York Stock Exchange, but it wasn't consistently listed. We just had a changing in the guard because Sotheby's was the oldest listed company that we had, but they are no longer listed as they went private. I'm aware. I know you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you had a little
2: something to do with that. A little that.
1: something to do with that one, yeah. But a great iconic brand, a great company, and 275-year-old brand must have been listed A long time ago.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's fun to see companies reinvent themselves throughout the years, too, and and how they've changed. That's a fun part of the job. IPOs get all the attention. You know, an IPO is a big high-profile event, and and everyone's looking for those. My favorite days are when companies come back to celebrate their milestones, and they're doing interesting and exciting things. So those are the fun ones for me.
1: The NYSE is as dynamic as the companies that list here.
2: Yeah, you have to be. You don't get to be 228 years old, and we're coming up on our 228th birthday in May. And you have to be willing to break some glass and change the way you do things to keep evolving and keep going.
1: Things are always changing. So I'd love to get your perspective of the markets, given given your perch and given that you see everything here. We're in obviously a bull market. The exchanges hit all-time highs every day now. Today. Uh, today, exactly. <laughs>
2: or I think we finished today uh, that way too.
1: Yeah, exactly right. But companies are staying private longer. There's access to capital everywhere, private and public markets. As a result, companies that go public maybe have less of a growth slope as the ones that used to go public earlier. And we've seen as a result of that, especially in 2019, some high profile misses like WeWork is an example that everyone always points to. So tell me about like the state of the markets. What's changing? Are companies going public too late in the game? What are the right companies to go public? What's your advice for private companies that are thinking about the IPO?
2: There's a lot wrapped up in there. And these are topics that we're obviously really passionate about for a number of reasons. When you look back at the 2019 IPO market, it seems like a really long time ago. But if you recall, the government was shut down this time last year. (laughs) So the first quarter was pretty slow. And then the second quarter was very, very busy. That was a little bit counterintuitive since there was so much volatility in the market coming out of the end of the year. Because typically when markets get volatile, the IPO market slows down. But as you mentioned, we were on this 10-year bull market run. And so what we saw instead of companies slowing down, we saw a lot of companies say, we want to be ready to go public because we're not quite sure if we might lose the opportunity. And, you know, the fact that there's so much private capital available has enabled them to stay private, but they weren't quite sure if that was going to stay that way. And so we saw a lot of companies getting ready. And so in Q2, once the government was reopened, we were very, very busy and it was on track to be a record year. And we did hit some records. What we then saw was what you highlighted. There were some large ones that didn't quite make it out the way they had hoped. And it started to really push the envelope around some of the issues that have been bubbling up for a long time. And the fact that companies are staying private, I think, is very problematic, not just for the markets in general, but for the U.S. And I think it's a trend we need to address.
1: People will hear that on this podcast and say, well, of course, Stacey's going to say that. It's self-serving. She wants companies to be public. So what are the reasons why? I'll tell someone, you
2: why. Yeah. yeah, I know it sounds self-serving. Frankly, I could look as a great growth opportunity for us to build out private market infrastructure and to say we're going to make the private markets more efficient. The reason why I don't like that as a business opportunity for us, and it's not to say we won't do it, but I don't like it. And the reason why is because this nation is built on a story of shared success. And I said our mission is to help companies raise money so that they can go out and change the world and provide opportunities for investors to share in that success. And if you're cutting out that second part of the equation and people don't get to share in that success, you're going to say, why should I support capitalism? Why should I support free enterprise? It doesn't work for us. If companies are staying private longer when their growth trajectories are really steep, and then they sort of level off as they come to the public markets, the public markets aren't going to always be there ready and waiting for them. And you're going to see a lot of opposition and As we're in this election cycle, we're actually hearing a lot of dialogue around, is this the right economic system for us here? So I think the fact that companies are staying private longer is contributing to the bifurcation of wealth, and I don't think that's something we should lose sight of. I think we need to address that. It's
1: an excellent point because buying a share of stock in a company is perhaps the most democratic thing that we have in the U.S.
2: It's what's made us what we are. I think if we change that, we're redefining the fabric of this nation, and I don't think we can minimize the importance of that.
1: So going public too late has been one of the problems. Any other issues in terms of why the public markets say no to to companies that? Yeah, so
2: I think there are three categories of issue that we see with companies staying private too long, and one is that bifurcation of wealth. And I, I frankly can't emphasize that enough. Two, there's a lack of discipline and governance in the private markets that the public markets demand when companies are small and they're still working out some of those kinks, that's fine. When they grow to be very large companies and they have bad habits that are growing with them, that becomes more problematic. I think we've seen a couple of examples of that. And there's more than one company, right, that's gone through this exercise where we started to question some of the discipline and governance that they have. And so getting companies out sooner introduces that discipline and governance that's really important. Third, the valuations in the private markets are not based on... Many buyers and sellers coming together and truly making a determination based on information and disclosures that the companies are sharing and really valuing a company. It's based on limited information and limited investors. That doesn't lead to really robust valuations. And so, what we see is these inflated private market valuations. In some cases, they're inaccurate just because they're not robust, you know, and there isn't a lot of activity. In some cases, they're inaccurate intentionally. That's even worse. And we can't expect that then those companies come out to the public markets and get repriced downward because now the public markets are really valuing these companies. And we can't have them be an exit strategy for the public where the public investor ends up getting hurt and then expect them to show up next time.
1: Yeah. Or it's opaque and you have private market valuations, which are hard to decipher from a transparency perspective. Yeah.
2: There's just not the same disclosures. Correct.
1: And then you get public and you're asking the public to not only value it, but define the metrics as well. That's a different analysis and a different way to run a company as an owner and as a manager. There are all kinds of dynamics at play here, but but the markets are healthy, right? Overall. Yeah,
2: the markets are healthy. And I don't think we're going to see a shutdown on IPOs. You mentioned WeWork. WeWork isn't the first company to test some of these limits, but it was an extreme example, right? So it got investors to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, should we be asking questions that we haven't been asking before there was this mindset that growth at all costs was okay. And now investors are saying, well, I want to know how a company is going to be profitable. If it's not profitable today, maybe I can live with that. If they can tell me how and when they're going to get there. Investors are being more discerning now about the profitability of companies. They're also pushing back on some of the governance issues. Some of those have developed because founder CEOs of massive companies had this power because people didn't want to miss out. Like if I think about 2018, 2019, FOMO comes to mind, right? Like people just did not want to miss out on being in the next iconic company that was going to grow. And now in 2020, I think it's show me the money, you know, like show me how you're going to get there.
1: Or show me the transparency. Show show me me the the plan. Show me the plan. Show me you're ready. Show
2: me you're ready. Show me you're a mature company that is worthy of my giving you my money. Having that transparency is important. Now, I think there's a balance. You know, I think about my job. It feels like it's all about balance. It's balancing investor protections with investor access. So if companies stay private, investors don't have access, and I think that's a bad trend. And so we lobby against those things, but we also want investor protections to be there too. It balancing issuer flexibility so companies being able to run their businesses, but still providing transparency into their businesses. So one of the issues that comes up a lot is quarterly reporting, you know, the challenges of being a public company and how that evolves. And it's a lot of work to go through those exercises. Now, we want to make sure that companies have the right disclosures, have enough transparency so that investors can make informed decisions, but still have the flexibility to go run their businesses and focus on the things that matter most.
1: Right. I'm a CEO with a board as a private company listening to you talk to me here or in a private conversation- And I'm thinking, okay, I agree with you. I'm going to get ready. I'm going to have a transparency, the right controls, the right metrics, the right governance. And I'm going to go public earlier. So how early can I go public is the question I get all the time. Because I want to go earlier. I want to have access to my stock for everyone. I want liquidity. I want a real float. Which size threshold really matters and makes it material?
2: I think when you're looking at the stability a company has in returns and some of the predictability they have, and you know it's a little bit of art and science combined, when you look at how companies are growing, I mean, I sometimes hear from CEOs, well, I want to wait until I know exactly what all of my numbers are going to be each quarter. Yes, I know you never know that, but at the same time, they want that predictability and steady nature. That's usually when their growth has leveled off a little bit though, right? I think that's too late if they're looking for that. But having a reasonable way to project that and they've had some growth, they have a base of business, they've already completed their sort of first phase growth and they're looking for what they're going to add on to their business now to continue that growth is a really good time to come out and tell investors that story.
1: There's no technical number, right? There's no saying. If you're less than a billion dollars of asset value or enterprise value, you should not go.
2: You would hear some technical numbers out there, but I think that they can be debated. I've heard some numbers that I think are a little too high.
1: should call your local advisor, basically.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can't give legal advice money.
1: (laughs) There are alternatives, though, to going public in a normal way, because some people would say going public is difficult, it's burdensome, I have to go talk to investors, I have to find my investors, of course, probably worthwhile and probably have a lot of long-term benefits to doing that. But there are other ways to go public these days. There's direct listings. There's something called SPACs, which is, you know, special purpose acquisition corporations, which is effectively building cash as yeah. a public company and then finding the assets. what Virgin later.
2: Galactic did.
1: Virgin Galactic did, yeah. We're familiar with the space. So how do you advise companies on direct listings or a traditional IPO process or the SPACs? Have there been too many of these things happening, too little, too few? What's the balance?
2: Everything we just talked about is sort of why you're starting to see things change and Mm -hmm. and how you're seeing companies think about new ways to go public. When you look historically at the drivers and the benefits of being a public company, it really comes down to four things. One, you want to raise money, right? So raising capital or access to capital more broadly. Two, liquidity for early investors and employees. Three, having a currency so you can engage in M&A. And four, a visibility and credibility event, having that public company stamp of approval. Traditionally, raising money was the primary driver, which is why we saw companies go public sooner because they needed money. But now, because there's so much private capital, they can wait and they're actually waiting until they need one of those other reasons. So that liquidity is actually one of the reasons that a lot of tech companies are pointing to now. They've been paying their employees in stock options or restricted stock for 10 years and they wanna go buy a house, it's hard to do, right? So becoming public makes that easier. Because those dynamics have shift, it allows you to take a step back, which frankly is a healthy exercise to do in any business at any time, to take a step back and say, well, why am I doing it this way and do I have to? Barry McCarthy, the CFO of Spotify, asked that question and said, uh, I don't need to raise money, but I wanna be public. And do I have to do that at the same time? He came to the New York Stock Exchange in 2016 and said, hey, I have this idea Can we work through it? And we worked on it for a year and a half with Spotify, with the SEC, with their lawyers and advisors, and came up with the direct listing, which allows a company to decouple capital raising from going public. Now, it worked great for Spotify, and and it worked well for Slack, the second company, to go that route. And there's only been two, so it's kind of hard to point overall. But what we saw was they actually traded with less volatility. And what's great about a direct listing is it democratizes access to the public event, There isn't an allocation to a handful of institutional investors the night before. No roadshow. There is a roadshow. That's actually interesting. And I think you'll see that change a lot more going forward. So there's an investor day, which is different from the IPO. And I think that's why a lot of people say, you can't do a roadshow, you do this investor day. You actually can still go do both. And so Spotify and Slack did a roadshow as well as broadcast an investor day. What the investor day does and is interesting is it democratizes access to information about the company. So- every investor, every public investor can go watch that investor day in advance and know what are they planning for the future? What's their guidance? What's their story? And is this something I want to invest in? And then they were on a level playing field with the most sophisticated investors out there if they wanted to partake. So there's also no lockups. So the holders can immediately sell if they want to. Really what it does is it gets you much more quickly to a mature state of a company where buyers and sellers can come together without artificial impairment. So if you think about an IPO, there are some artificial constraints. You might wanna buy more as an institutional investor, but only receive a certain allocation. And you may really actually wanna sell, but have to wait for a lockup release. And retail investors very often don't have the same access to the IPO. So really what a direct listing does is just put everybody in a level playing field and says, go. What we've seen is Slack in particular, which was the second one, so it was a more known process, had the third largest opening trade of all time in the U.S. markets, even though it was a much smaller company. $1.8 billion worth of shares of Slack traded hands on a $19 billion company. So it was 10%. Trade one.
1: Trade one. Just the
2: opening trade. Wow. Just the opening trade. It was number three. It was Alibaba, which was the largest IPO of all time, then Facebook, and then Slack. So it was really significant. That's price discovery.
1: Well, you're making the case for direct listings because there's only been two, but lower volatility- total equal access and good results and liquidity, and everyone knows the story at the same time, what's the downside?
2: It's more work on the company. And I think that's where you'll see some of the evolution in it. I think the banks will provide more services for the companies through this process as well. Not all companies are the same. Some of them are looking for stronger relationships with institutions, and and I think you'll see some evolution there. And some of them might want to raise money at the same time as becoming public.
1: Raising money and having somewhat of a more concentrated, loyal investor base that you go and find and cultivate and frankly are there with you for the whole time. That's the process of raising capital in a traditional IPO.
2: Yes. And you can choose a loyal investor base. I think you'll see that start to happen a little bit more with direct listings, too, as companies work with banks on how can they target investors because it doesn't stop you. From doing that part as well. It's just opening it up to others. So the next phase is to be able to raise capital. And we filed with the SEC to be able to introduce that functionality. In November, right? We filed and it'll take some time to work through that, as I would expect. You know, it took us a year and a half to get the Spotify one out the door. We're optimistic. There's been a lot more engagement and a lot more support more broadly for the initiative. The message I would have for companies, think about your goals. Think about what you're trying to achieve with a public event And look at the tools that you have available and figure out what's right for you. And you have advisors and there are bank advisors. You would advise them. I would advise them. And and we can help them through that process. And it just doesn't have to be one size fits all.
1: What I'm hearing from you overall is the markets are still very healthy. Companies have learned some lessons given the 2019 and 2018 period of volatility and some of these processes. There are other structures available to companies to go public. Sometimes you should go public earlier versus way in too late. To put all this together and give me your outlook for 2020 on the IPO market. I
2: think it's good. I do think we need to see some large companies come out to the public markets with a clear story about their profitability and their numbers and see investors welcome them. Because I think there's some anxiety around what we saw at the end of 2019 that I think once we see the window is open and you can become a public company and there is benefit for that, you know, it sometimes gets lost in the story. On average, the IPOs last year performed well. They are up. <laughs> you know. It, it's There's some high-profile ones that got a lot of the attention, but really, you know, the vast majority have performed well. And
1: investors did their job. The ones that came through job. did well,
2: right? Yeah, and, and many of them did well. Consumers, on average, were up. When you look at 2020, we're going to see just a more discerning investor, and I think you'll see some companies retrench a little bit and make sure they have the right story for investors. And frankly, I think that's a good thing for the market and investors should be asking questions. You know, you look at things like dual class voting rights, the type of governance issues that companies have, they're more relevant because they're so much bigger now. If a founder was bringing their company public, at an earlier life cycle, they owned all the shares, so they didn't have to worry about getting a vote because they had the votes.
1: Right? The dual class structure you're referring to is there's a straight economic ownership, and then there's a voting class that's concentrated with the founder or founders, typically. Right. right. So some
2: shares have more voting right, and you'll see founders wanting to preserve their voting rights. It actually started with media companies, of course, back in the day, but some of the tech companies are following suit now. Not as many as you would think. It gets a lot of attention. You know, you feel like investors should have shares, and you know, I sometimes get into some debates around whether or not we should allow that style of voting structure. And my concern is, again, investor access. If I say we won't allow that voting structure in the public markets, I get concerned that companies will just stay private if they want to maintain that control.
1: The argument that, speaking on behalf of sort of the media companies and the tech companies about dual voting class is saying we could enable us to make longer term, bolder decisions by having the votes in hand while we can be more forward-looking and make some maybe uh, short-term decisions on sort of economic dynamics. And people are eyes wide open because they know what they're investing in. And so if there's more volatility, so be it. But we have to make longer-term decisions without worrying about dilution.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you can focus on the long-term and investors have that transparency to know that this is the structure but then they have the dollars to vote with whether or not they want to invest in you and your decision-making.
1: There's a great example I found in France because the French exchanges require one class of stock, if I'm not mistaken, but the longer you hold the stock, you accumulate more votes. So it rewards loyalty of the investor. So if you sell your stock short-term, you lose your votes. If you hold it for a long period of time, you accumulate more votes. So it also prevents some activism and irregularities in the trading and volatility.
2: Yeah. We actually have that in our listing standards that you can do that. And we have a handful of companies that leverage, it's referred to as tenured voting because the longer you are an owner, your votes count for more. We haven't seen a number of companies take advantage of that structure. I like that a lot. It's interesting.
1: Remind me how many listed companies are on the NYSE?
2: It's between 22 and 2300.
1: And which one's your favorite? (laughs)
2: You know, it's like children. (laughs) You love them all the same. Some days you like some a little bit more than others, perhaps.
1: (laughs) In an average year... Many companies join the club. It
2: varies, obviously, by market conditions, and I would say in the fifty to one hundred range typically might join. But the numbers change, so the numbers have been dropping overall, and a lot of that's through M and A. Yes, and fewer companies coming public. So the number of public companies in total in the U.S. is down by half over a twenty-year period. So that's pretty significant, and yes. you know that's why I do get focused on making sure everybody has access to those opportunities. I know it seems self-serving, but if we're not making sure investors get access to all the opportunities out there, we're really hurting ourselves.
1: That's how we have to advise companies with a full toolkit, as you mentioned, because going public is one option. M&A is another option and they're related to one another.
2: They are, yeah.
1: As is the cost of capital, right?
2: Right. A lot of this is capital allocation. And how do you want to use your money during Different periods of time and different market conditions and what investors are thinking of you. And if there is a discrepancy, apply capital differently. I think that's an important part of what we're seeing happen in the markets, right? You know, I mean, that's something that gets talked about a lot. And, you know, we hear about it with buybacks because it sounds like CEOs are trying to inflate their stock prices and it's like, or they think their stock is worth more than it is and they're going to allocate capital differently. Correct. the freedom of the markets and market forces is really what makes them so efficient.
1: Ultimately, your job as a CEO or any CEO's job is to allocate capital and allocate resources, including human capital.
2: Yes, exactly. So exactly. while
1: we're on uh, your favorites, I want to test your media personal interests here. Okay. So so <laughs> we just finished Winter Vacation. Which books are you reading now? Which books did you particularly enjoy, audio or, or reading them?
2: Yeah. So I will say 2019 was an audio year for me. I hadn't done a lot of audio books in the past, but I went on to a trend of listening to books, especially ones that were narrated by the author like Malcolm Gladwell had narrated Talking to Strangers and it had a very podcast feel to it. He had incorporated the music. That was a fun one. Or Trevor Noah's book, which I had never read, Born a Crime. He narrates that and it's really quite (laughs) funny. I think you and I were together when I saw him speaking about it (laughs) and I thought, I got to go read that book. And someone came up to me and said, no, don't read it. You have to listen to it. And that's really what got me to listening to books. So that's what I've been listening to lately.
1: You see, to multitask also, I find. Yes,
2: I realized how much more I could get done if I could listen to them.
1: Exactly right. Okay, so... Which book that you've read or listened to has had the biggest impact on your professional life in terms of leadership and inspiration?
2: I don't know if it applies professional. One of the books, though, that I feel like, and this is an old one, but still applies, the Anne Rand books. And so Atlas Shrugged for me was one that really hit me because it made me rethink what I think it was a test. It was like, do you really believe this or not? And so I had to think about how I think about things. And I came back in some places reaffirmed and I came back in other places. No, but it really tapped into the spirit of the obligation to do and accomplish everything you can as a person. And, and I, I thought that was a really impactful book.
1: I like that. Favorite podcast aside from Inside the Ice House, which is your podcast. Well, <laughs> aside from Kindred Cast too. <laughs> okay. We covered that one. That's good. <laughs> okay. That
2: for sure. That one. So Kindred Cast followed by Inside the Ice House. I listen to a lot of news ones. So The Daily is one that I, I listen to. I like Brian Koppelman's too. He's got a, an interesting group of guests on there, but I probably most often am, am listening to a lot of news ones.
1: Great. Last one. Any TV shows uh, that you're watching now?
2: Well, I got into The Crown and now I feel (laughs) like I earned it because there's just so much happening (laughs) that I feel like I have the whole backstory now. (laughs)
1: It's real life.
2: (laughs) It is. It it was a good one.
1: Well, Stacey, I want to say I I admire you. I'm so respectful of the career that you've built so far and it's just the beginning stages and I can't wait to see what happens from here. And I really appreciate our collaborations and and your being here today.
2: Aria, getting to work with people like you is what makes this job fun.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Audiation.